100 episodes have finally happened. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Join us today for this major minor celebration. Podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing This and Hidden. This is a fantastic day in our neighborhood as we have finally reached episode number one zero zero. I'm Brad, your stubborn host who just won't give up. One day we'll make a good episode. One day. Maybe today's the day. Maybe. So how are we going to celebrate this joyous occasion? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to do it with chaos, of course. What else would you expect? Well, it's organized chaos, I suppose. We have a plan. Okay, an outline. Maybe a rough idea. It's got to be fleshed out a little bit. It's going to be fleshed out a lot. Uh, but, you know, in general, what we're going for is kind of unsupervised child at a buffet. We're going to pick all the sweetest topics we can, whether or not they make any sense being mixed together. So, I mean, this is going to be like having spaghetti mixed with potato chips and a slice of pizza with some ice cream plopped on top. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. We all know how much everybody hates me rambling on at the beginning of the episode. So let's not ramble on at the beginning. Let's just get right to it with our first topic. We are going to begin the show today with a war story. Several of you have been asking for a follow up to our war stories episode from way back in August of last year. I plan to do a proper follow-up eventually, but we're going to lead with one of my favorite stories from when I was in practice. So when you're a criminal defense attorney, you spend a lot of time in, in municipal courts, you know, city courts. And, you know, it's, it's a good way to make a living. You, you get a little bit of money for not a lot of work. You know, that in Alabama, at least, municipal courts handle things that are kind of minor on the criminal scale. Uh, you know, the, the common misdemeanors like DUIs, domestic violence, minor assaults, that sort of thing. And, you know, like I said, good cases because the clients typically pay up front. You rarely have to go to trial. It's easy to work out a deal. It's just one of those things you do to keep your doors open, right? So this story is going to begin with an appointment from a man accused of domestic violence. He was arrested in a city that thankfully is very easy to work with, or at least it was for me. So I was, I was happy to meet with the guy. I was a bit surprised when he showed up because he was blind. Before even shaking the man's hand, I felt like we had a decent chance of working this case out quickly because it's hard to have more sympathy for a victim when the perpetrator is allegedly blind, you know? It's an angle I could play off of. So I helped the gentleman to his seat, and 
asked him to tell me what was, you know, the cause of him visiting an attorney today. I usually liked my clients to give me their entire story before I started asking questions. And in short, he told me he was living with his girlfriend. They were having some issues and it had kind of been escalating over time. Their relationship was deteriorating. You know, they had disagreements and then arguments and then all this petty stuff started. My client was living at the girlfriend's house, okay? And she loved to hold that over his head. I don't know that he was in a position where he could have afforded his own place, but we didn't really get into that. Whenever they would have fights and stuff, she'd threaten to change the locks and kick him out and, and just, you know, kind of what you would expect. Um, one of her favorite things to do when she was really mad at my client was to rearrange the furniture in the house because he was blind and he had memorized a certain path and she would change that. So he was constantly tripping and falling and he showed me, you know, several bruises and cuts along his elbows, his hands, his chin, um, you know, places like that to support his claims. She also would apparently rearrange the kitchen so he couldn't find food in there. And then she wouldn't help, you know, make him a meal if he was hungry. This is what I mean by pettiness. This is the level these two people were working on, okay? And, you know, I have no doubt he did his fair share of pettiness in return. He just wasn't very forthcoming with that. So he finishes telling me his story and I start asking my questions. And first, I want to clarify some of the details about what she had done to him. Unimportant bits, but, you know, I, I would ask a lot of questions I already knew the answer to just to kind of test the accuracy of my client's story to make sure they weren't making it up as they went along. And this dude stayed fairly consistent, so I felt like he was, you know, mostly telling me the truth. And then we get to the questions that we kind of, I know all of us right now want to know the answer to, right? You know, how does a blind dude go about committing domestic violence? I mean, I know that sounds a little bit callous, right? But if this woman was able to just torment the heck out of this poor dude and he didn't know that he was falling over ottomans and running into end tables, how did he manage to abuse her? Well, part of the answer is she had multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this kind of paints a bit of a scene in her mind, doesn't it? This is a blind man stumbling over furniture, eventually getting frustrated, and then succeeding in abusing his girlfriend. And she was, she was somewhere in between crutches and a wheelchair with her condition. She showed up to court in a wheelchair, but... I got the impression for my investigation that she used crutches and she didn't, you know, she was still in the early stages of having to have crutches. If that makes any sense, you know, it wasn't like she couldn't walk without them. She could get around. She just needed to lean on a wall or something like that. And, you know, of course, that's why she was able to move the furniture and all this stuff. Cause she, if she's stuck in a wheelchair, how does that happen? And so what caused this slobber knocker that got the police involved in these people's lives? So the client came home from work early one day. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what he did for a living because this was like 12 or 13 years ago. But when he got home, he caught his girlfriend cheating on him. 
with his best friend. I mean, the shock, the indignity, the, there's just so many questions. First, a friend. I know what you're thinking, and you don't want to ask, so I'll just tell you. Yeah, he was disabled too. So we have this threesome going on of people who all have different physical disabilities. The friend was missing a leg, and I think he was deaf. And I swear to God, every word of this I'm telling you is true. So you've got him who's deaf and legless having sex with a woman who has MS and allegedly couldn't move around very well on her own, who was caught by a blind man. And they're all, you know, that just creates this rather sordid little love triangle, right? Okay, so the next question is, well, how did this domestic violence thing go down? Of course, being blind, my client uses a cane to get around. And so he tells me that he picked up his cane to take a swing at his buddy and missed, you know, because he's blind. Um, and the smack that he heard was actually his girlfriend. He hit her in the head. The legless friend managed to get out of the house. He left his prosthetic leg behind, amazingly enough. And then it became this Benny Hill type situation where you've got this blind man chasing this, you know, disabled woman throughout a house, a layout which she doesn't know. So he's falling over everything as she tries to run away. And he's just swinging his cane, wildly hitting whatever he can. Yeah. Wherever he heard, I mean, he was like a blind rattlesnake. Wherever he heard a noise, he just took a swing. He told me that he thinks he swung somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe a dozen times. And he only hit his girlfriend twice other than that first blow. And both of those times were on the legs. But one was good enough to, you know, give her a pretty nasty cut. And um, she managed to crawl out of the house while he was still swinging and looking for her because she couldn't get to her crutches. And, you know, the entire time my guy's just fighting ghosts, falling over furniture. The neighbors see what's going on and just decide that they need to get the police involved because you've got a woman crawling through the grass. You've got this man appearing in the windows, you know, fencing with ghosts, probably looking like he was possessed by a demon. It was, you know, just the most ridiculous set of circumstances ever. One of the officers who responded told me kind of off the record that they ha had to give more medical attention to my guy because he had just torn himself up during this fit of, I guess, literal blind rage. And, you know, I do, again, he was showing me all his injuries from where he had fallen. I don't know how many of those were truly just from the falling and how many were from his little attack there i'm guessing the bulk came from uh the incident that caused the cops to get into his rife but here's where kind of the bone is buried all right there there was you know there was one more question that i needed to ask and i don't have a very good memory but i remember this conversation very clearly because it was so bizarre so i'm gonna try to play it out for you so it starts with me. I said, so you said when you got home, they were having sex. Because that's right. How'd you know they were having sex? Oh, I could just tell. 
No, I mean, how were you able to tell? You can't see, which is how I would tell. So how could you tell that they were having sex? Just felt like they were having sex. I mean, did you hear the moaning in a sexual way? Or did one of them say something that sounded sexual? Nope. I could just tell they was having sex. Okay, but I can't argue to the judge that you thought they were having sex without being able to explain how you caught them in the act. Don't know. I guess I could just sense it. I could hear it. You could hear it? Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. Well, what, what did you hear? I heard them having sex. Okay, well, you got to give me more detail. How, how do you know the noises that you were hearing was them having sex? Because it sounded like sex. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does sex sound like? Like a boot stuck in mud or what? I don't know what it means. So ultimately, we had to go to court. Um, in court, you know, the way it kind of works is, in municipal courts at least, it's pretty laid back. And, uh, you know, I knew the prosecutor. We were kind of buddies. And so when I got there, he called me over and asked what case I was there on. And I told him. And he just instantly dropped his pen. And he said, Brad, you, you got to do something with these folks. And I'm thinking, me, I'm not a social worker. What the heck am I going to do with them? I'm just trying to keep this dude out of jail. And the prosecutor goes on to explain to me that the police have been out to this couple's house about two dozen times over the last six months. And the powers that be in the city, basically the mayor and the police chief, were really wanting to come down hard on them. But we were able to work out this crazy deal. My client and his uh, little soulmate there would agree to move out of the city in exchange for all the charges being dropped. Now, understand, it wasn't just my guy that had been arrested for domestic violence. I think between the two of them, like I said, the police had visited him two dozen times and had made something like seven or eight arrests, and it was about split evenly between the two. Cops were tired of just wasting their time and their resources and if, I mean, I have to imagine this was like an episode of Reno 911 every time they went out there. And so when I talked to my client and we came up with that idea, the prosecutor just jumped all over it, you know, get rid of them. It just so happens they had been looking for a bigger place, I guess, so they would have more room for their fights. I don't know. And, you know, technically this was an illegal plea sentence. Um, you can't require somebody to move out of a jurisdiction in connection with uh, dropping criminal charges. But my client didn't care because he was ready to move out of the city anyway. The prosecutor dang sure didn't care because he was tired of his officers having to go out there all the time. And uh, so we got it done. Basically, we continued the case. Client and his girlfriend got an apartment outside of the city. I sent a copy of the lease over to the prosecutor, and he sent me back a motion dismissing the case and an order signed by the judge. So that's the kind of good an attorney can do for you in municipal court. 
I don't, I, I still to this day don't know what the sound of sex is. He was never able to explain that to me, but I, I liked my boot stuck in mud question. I, I'm kind of proud of that one. So I, I hope these two lovebirds are still together, still kicking the crap out of each other. Because, you know, if they can't make it, what hope do the rest of us have, right? All right, well, we opened up with some fun. Now we're going to shake things up a little with an alleged ghost story. This is an ongoing saga that has captured the attention and the imagination of YouTube. It centers on a man by the name of Mario Laura, a small business owner in Mexico. He runs a shop that provides a variety of party supplies, but his day-to-day -day life is the exact opposite. Now, I'll try to generally stick to the facts as we explore what's becoming this epic tale of horror, but I want to say up front, this is one of those stories that I guess if you want to believe in ghosts and hauntings, you have lots of fun with it. If you're a skeptic, I think it's very easy to poke holes in a lot of these videos, but that's we're not going to get into that. We're just going to enjoy the ride, okay? So the story begins back in 2020 when Mario opened a store. And it being Mexico, obviously the society there is riddled with crime and other problems. So, of course, he had a security system installed and it included a lot of cameras. And it's from these security cameras that all this internet fame and sympathy has arisen and grown. Now, of course, you know, things started off well. He was an avid user of social media. Everything he posted was upbeat, positive, funny. Kind of the stuff you would expect from a guy that sells party supplies, right? I mean, you don't want to deal with someone who's mopey trying to sell you a birthday kit. But he was what you thought, all right? So I think he opened sometime in April or May of, of 2020. Come October... An interesting time things begin to change and it's first reflected through his social media postings gone were most of the funny memes and uh gifts and all that and he started focusing on a pinata there was something very wrong with this pinata something so wrong that a local priest felt compelled when he heard about this to come by and perform a blessing over the store and over this pinata. See, what it was is this pinata would always be on the floor when Mario would open his store. And, you know, as you can imagine, most of the pinatas are hanging from the ceiling, right? So you can see him, you can watch him spin, all that fun stuff. This one, every morning on the floor. In one video, he actually found it in the store's bathroom, you know, kind of at the back of the building. Because of this consistent odd activity, Mario decided he was going to take down this pinata and he was just going to put it back in storage. He didn't want to sell it to somebody. He didn't want to be responsible for bringing a cursed pinata to a child's birthday party, right? 
But still, somehow, this pinata kept showing up on the sales floor every morning. So one day, as this, it's either to test out the pinata or to show his audience that this wasn't a joke, he took the pinata and put it in the bathroom, standing up in a quarter, and then shut the door, and then kind of stood guard over the area. I think he was doing some work so he could sit there and watch and make sure nobody went into the bathroom. And then about 10 or 15 minutes later, he goes and checks and the pinata has fallen down. Now it didn't fall over kind of face first. It looked like something had swept its legs out from under it. Possibly maybe it had kind of slid down, you know, cause it was in the corner leaning back when he left it. So I guess if there's not enough friction there, the feet could have slipped out from under it, but, it's a little odd, right? It's And Mario even acknowledged that, you know, look, maybe the legs aren't strong enough to hold up this pinata. That's why it fell. Not a huge deal. A few nights later, though, Mario's closing up when he hears lots of bumping and shuffling coming from the back storage area of his shop. Now, as he cautiously approaches, he sees bits of black and red paper kind of making this trail. It's the same color and type of paper that was on the pinata, which I haven't mentioned yet. It was a Moana pinata, I think, from that Disney movie. So when Mario got to the storeroom where all the noises were coming from, the noises stopped. And there was nothing to be found, including that pinata. Now, shortly thereafter, Mario's employees claimed to begin reporting these unusual experiences. Uh, there's one security video he posted that, for example, shows one of his employees stocking bags of candy on a shelf when this pack of uh, styrofoam cups really kind of flies off the shelf behind her. And it does take an angle that looks like it was thrown in some fashion. You know, they didn't just fall off the shelf. They traveled a good you know probably six or eight feet she gets scared and she runs mario also started posting pictures because he was finding all these long black hairs just kind of covering everything in his store you know so either the girl from the ring was being a brat or he just had some really nasty employees and you know with his employees now getting involved and his his merchandise getting covered in this gross hair he decided to invest in more security cameras throughout the shop that were kind of on a different system, and these would be motion activated. And it was part of his effort, I guess, to catch more of what was going on. And he certainly started coming up with more and more videos. Now, probably his most famous clip, and you may have even seen it because it went viral shortly after he posted it, comes from what I think is kind of the front center of the store. And we have this large pile of either big pinatas or big stuffed animals. I can't really tell just from the video and it's not explained. Well, this clip, which takes place at night, there's a, one of these motion activated security cameras right in front of this pile of goodies. Okay. And suddenly the camera begins being affected by strange lighting. It's like, it was almost like if you've seen 
security footage when someone shines a light at a camera that's set for night vision. You know, it takes a while for it to adjust. And so this camera would kind of be washed out by light and then it would fade back to normal, then it'd get washed out again. And that, that went on three or four times. And you could hear some odd noises, but in fairness, I don't know if it's just, you know, a scary track he put on to make it seem spookier or if it was noises coming from inside the, the store. That too is not explained. But the money shot in all this is in the middle of this pile of pinatas. All of a sudden, this like evil, monstrous looking head slowly like lifts out from the middle of pinatas, staring at the camera, and then lowers back down inside. Yeah, it's very creepy. The little monstrous figure has long black hair. But it's entirely possible it could be a Halloween mask and someone was just holding it up because the face never moves. It never shows any expression. It's just locked in to this evil smile. Very convenient, in my opinion. Nice little scare if you're trying to do something for Halloween, I guess. But that video kind of took the internet by storm and that's when Mario kind of becomes famous i guess now when he gets an alert when this happens and he decides to go check on the store he tries to get some of his family and neighbors to come with him but nobody would go he claims so he had to check it out alone when he gets there none of the lights inside the store will work he had to rely on his phone's you know flashlight function to navigate and he records as he explores and he finds nothing the only kind of unusual bits is he was doing this as a live stream and it kept freezing up, which doesn't happen in his other recordings. But again, that can be explained in multiple ways. Now, when the clip ends, it ends suddenly. And it ends with him panning up to the ceiling. And he has storage kind of built into the rafters. But when he kind of pans up, and it seems like a... It doesn't see it's not like an intentional pan to see what's up there. It's almost like he's just kind of moving his camera around. But when he does it, you can see this figure up there. It's this dark shape. And of course, it's very difficult to make out, but it's you can view it as a head and maybe two hands gripping the top of the drywall that ends just below the storage area. And from one angle or from one enhancement I saw, you can maybe make out these like pipe cleaner type arms too. It's, it's really hard to say, but it, that, that to me was a little more freaky than the head popping up. But again, it's static. It doesn't move. Easily could be explained as a prop that had been set up. But this, you know, coupled with the face coming out of the pinatas, like I said, his internet fame instantly just grows because he's gone viral. But in fairness to Mario, he claims he was so freaked out by this that he stopped posting on social media. So he didn't immediately try to ride this wave to get more and more followers. He actually, for over a month, posted nothing. 
His next post was an update claiming that some local like witch doctor or shaman or holy man, whatever you want to call it, had seen the video and had come to the store and offered to help. And Mario claims that, you know, he let the shaman in. That's what Mario calls him. So that's what I'm going to refer to him as. Mario says he let the shaman in one night after they closed. The shaman was in the back of the store with the pinata. Mario stayed up front. And he heard all these crazy noises, and it sounds like all these rituals are being performed and whatnot. And then the shaman comes out. He was done, and he's holding the pinata, and he begs Mario. He says, please, can I have this pinata? I want to research it further. I want to see what's involved with it. And Mario readily agrees. He's thinking, you know, if I can get rid of this stupid thing, maybe that'll make all the weirdness go away. Now, sadly, that decision just made things worse. Mario began posting videos again. And one of the first ones he posted, again, comes from his motion-activated cameras. And it's of his pinatas that are hanging up, you know, down an aisle, right? So you can see three or four on frame. And the one that's most center all of a sudden starts spinning and not just a mild spin, but like a helicopter blade type of whirl. Like it's going bananas. The pinatas around it aren't moving much. The one to the left of it spins a little, but really all the action is on that middle one. Um, then there's, he posts other videos of things like supplies just falling off shelves in the back. Um, just, you know, random things like that. So seeing that his problems are still persisting, Mario claims that he reaches out to the shaman for extra help. But the shaman says, nope, I'm done. I'm not messing with this anymore. And actually takes the steps of blocking Mario's phone number, his email address, and all his social media accounts. So Mario just literally cannot get in touch with this dude. And, you know, all the while Mario is claiming that every night he's receiving, you know, multiple reports from his cameras of activity. Uh, you know, the, the lights are still giving him problems at night. His security cameras start to just mysteriously fail. And meanwhile, he was contacted by just dozens of like, spiritualists and priests and paranormal investigators all who wanted to help for large sums of money of course and his followers were begging him like just let go of the store this is too dangerous just let it go but mario said the problem is he had dumped all his life savings into his store like he had worked as a laborer and saved money and saved money and saved money until he finally had enough to open up the store and so he's kind of trapped with it. Like this is his store until he can find someone to overpay for it or he can make his money back, right? He just can't leave. And of course, the story just keeps getting worse and worse. One night, Mario did let in some paranormal investigators who just wanted to explore the store for the sake of exploring. And it wasn't just... My understanding, I didn't see videos of this, but my understanding is he just lets in like this traveling circus worth of paranormal investigators, like dozens of them. Meanwhile, because he had let Facebook or 
whoever, you know, Twitter, whoever know that this was going on. The streets are just packed outside with his followers who are curious to see what activity is going to be discovered. Well, all these paranormal investigators do all these different tests under all these different conditions, and not a single one of them finds anything. So that kind of is a bummer to his reputation and to the situation. But Mario claims the activity start up again once all the investigators are gone. Yeah, a few days later, it kicks back up. So he has the idea of, look, I had this Moana pinata that was kind of the central focus of all this. Let me just get another one. Maybe that's what I need to calm this down. So he orders a new one. It comes in. Before he even puts it in his story, he takes it to the church, has a priest bless it, and like, from the way he describes it, basically like drowns this pinata in holy water, okay? And so he takes the Moana doll and he puts it back in the storage room to see what happens with it. And again, the activity begins to focus on the pinata, the Moana pinata. Mario posts videos of the doll standing up at night, only for it to fall all over for no reason. Um, there's one video where it falls over and then it gets like just, it's like somebody just punted that thing down the hallway. It flies down the hallway off camera. I mean, it Leroy Jenkins out of the frame. It was crazy. But again, it's all of these events are something that can be explained through a non-paranormal way. After seeing that event, Mario decides he's not going to open up his business to the public the next day, but he instead live streams as he explores his shop for 40 minutes to see what's there. Well, it just so happens. This is the day. He goes to look for the Moana pinata, and it's not where he left it. So he starts poking around, and he finds some of the paper kind of ripped off again like he had before. But this time, in the very, very, very back of his store, he finds a pinata, and it looks like it's been ripped apart by wild dogs. And it's the area where it's found is unusual in that to get there, you have to open up a door that's very, very heavy. Um, watching him move around, he had to exercise some strength to get that back door open. Now, in front of that back door was one of the arms of Moana. But in the back room there is where it looked like you had the wild dog feeding frenzy. Again, while showing the carnage to his viewers, he pans up into the raptors. And this time he sees another shadow creature. And it's one that Mario did not react to. So it was one that his viewers pointed out. So either again, but again, it is motionless. It could be a prop. And maybe Mario thought this is a good way for my viewers to point out something. Or I guess maybe legit something's there and he just didn't see it. Mario continues to upload just videos of random events. Um, you know, one, he walks by, he's doing some work to the store. He walks by where his tools are and his drill, it's a corded drill, 
and it's unplugged and it's obvious from the 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 scene uh as she walks by it turns on and it the movement of it propels it towards mario another shows um the store after closing where you've got like gift bags and ribbons and bows and things like that just being thrown down from the shelves admittedly with some violence behind it they're not just falling off like it's a waterfall but looks more like they're being thrown now the next month and i forget where we are at this point because not all the videos are dated or they're uploaded at a different time from when they're recorded um we get this wild turn of events that shaman that took the pinata and refused to speak to mario afterwards well, he contacts Mario out of the blue, and he's agreed that it's time to return the pinata. But Mario would have to come pick it up. And it's not like he's going to come pick it up at a bank or at a church or something like that. The shaman claims he left the pinata in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle, basically out in this very remote location far away from any potential help or assistance. And of course, Mario goes there. The location was so secluded that he had to navigate by coordinates. And the, he takes video, of course, as he's driving. He sets up his phone like a dash cam. And he's driving down this dirt road, but the word road is probably a bit generous. This looks more like what you would see mountain bikers going through in a desert type terrain. You know, there's just large boulders everywhere and quick drop-offs and all sorts of crazy things. And of course, Mario decides to go do this at night. And the thing that bugs me most of all is Mario's gaslight is on during all this. Why are you going out at the middle of the night to collect some evil doll and you don't even put gas in your car. I mean, he's just asking for trouble. This is how most American horror stories begin. Ugh. But anyway, Mario drives as far as he can drive. And then he just, his vehicle, you know, he's in a, a basically a two-door coupe. It's not going to go over all this terrain. So he has to get out and walk the rest of the way at night in this deserted area he's able to find the vehicle without many problems because it is kind of just sticking out there it's looks like a vehicle that's been totally gutted and burned and when he gets there he in the back seat he finds a black garbage bag he opens it up the moana pinata's there so he takes it and works his way back to his vehicle Okay, so while he's driving home, he has some incidents. First of all, he hears noises as he's getting to his car. And that freaks him out. And, and the noises, they sound like these very loud and chilling screams from a woman being hurt, but from a distance, if that makes sense. Which, of course, scares him. And it would scare me, too, in that situation. Um, so he tosses the garbage bag with the pinata in his back seat, starts up the vehicle, and he's holding his phone in his hand as he's reversing and all that. 
And if you freeze the video of him doing all this, you can see into his back seat and there's an odd shadow there. It could be just some sort of distortion from the phone camera, but many people swear that it looks like a face of a man is sitting in his back seat. He gets back on his road and he's driving pretty fast. And all of a sudden you can start hearing those, the women's yells again, but they're very, very close. And that apparently shocks Mario. And it, I mean, it shocks anyone that would, that's listening, but not, you know, the screams cause Mario to speed up some more. He soon kind of hits a bump and loses control of his vehicle and kind of swerves off the road. And it looks like he hits a pile of rocks. His camera work at this point is not wonderful, um, but he's stuck. And so it doesn't look like there's any real damage to the vehicle. It looks like it's mostly superficial. The bumpers kind of been dislodged and, you know, he's, he scraped up the paint and things like that, but, he could keep going. I couldn't tell whether or not he was in a position where he could back up and go because he was off-road a little bit, so he may not have all his wheels on the ground. But regardless, he um, go, you know, gets back in his car, grabs his gun, grabs um, the garbage bag, and then just takes off on foot. And, you know... He is walking away briskly when we hear another yell and then Mario just runs and the video ends during this process. The second scream, the one that occurred when Mario ran off the road, Mario claims he never heard that. He only heard it in the recording. Uh, it's odd to me that he would say that when that would be the perfect cause for him losing control of his vehicle. But hey, you know, whatever. After this, Mario again goes radio silent uh, for the rest of the year. In fairness, this pickup took place in December, I think, the very beginning of December. So basically, for about a month, he's radio silent. The next video he posts the next year, in 2021. Shows the bathroom door to the store opening and slamming furiously again and again and again. He eventually kind of, when it stops, he goes in there and shows everybody that the original Moana pinata is there and nobody else is in the bathroom. It seems like Moana is the only thing in there. I feel pretty comfortable saying that. Other activity continues after that. We've got more crap being thrown to the ground, more stock falling off the shelves. Mario then starts reporting that he's having some real health problems. Um, he's had real bad insomnia. He's developing a lot of anxiety, and he starts having these sudden nosebleeds that come out of nowhere. And he says he's you know never had that happen before. Some of his motion. Uh, security cameras show this white mist like shadow that kind of flies around the back office and then in one video when it's flying around it hits the tv and the tv turns on by itself 
at the request of his followers the next night mario stayed late to see if it would happen again he props up his phone camera near the tv and sure enough it happens again tv cuts on all by itself turns on to a station that's all static basically and some folks who are talented with video editing software have messed around with the recording and found that if you tweak the brightness just right and knock around the contrast some, you can actually see humanoid-like figures moving among the static. And the TV is emitting these growls while it's on. Then his car turns against him. Well, not his car in total, just his radio. He's driving down the road one night when large bursts of kind of interference interrupt the music he's listening to. He doesn't think anything of it, but then we have the good internet folks who are good with audio manipulation play around with it and discover that if you slow the distortion down and clean it up a little bit, it sounds like someone is speaking Spanish and threatening to kill Mario. Then we have the TV getting back in the act um, where we've got Mario mid-conversation talking to the TV, asking it what it wants. And it's, he's getting this growling response. It's, it sounds like, I guess, like what a dragon would sound like if dragons were real and could talk and lived inside TVs. Um, Now, I mean, it's, it's, it's not pleasant to listen to. It's a little scary. Um, but, you know, I, I'm from the generation. I saw the movie Poltergeist when I was like six or seven. So TVs being a portal, just, you know, that doesn't sit right with me. Uh, Mario ends the conversation with the dragon in the TV by unplugging it. But, of course, the TV just turns itself right back on because it's not done with Mario. Now, apparently, again, you slow it down, you mess with the audio some. What the dragon voice is apparently trying to say is that it wanted Mario to either kill himself or leave the premises. Not exactly equal request there, but regardless, that's what we come up with. So then comes March and Mario decides it would be fun to run a 24 hour stream from his shop. So folks could just pop in and see what's shaking it. See if they can catch their own ghost, right? Well, several hours go by and nothing much happens. When suddenly a voice can be heard right next to the camera. And it says a couple times in Spanish, each person with their scissors. All right, I admit that's a creepy-ass message. <laughs> not, not a happy message. That's just messed up. Then we have the store lights going on like crazy, cutting off like crazy. The voice comes back, talks some more about scissors, and then kind of ends by saying, I am no longer scared. Then Moana, who has been on the screen during this 24-hour run, starts kind of seizing for lack of a better word it's like an earthquake hit but only hit precisely where Boana was hanging um again mario starts having issues with the cameras 
He keeps one camera dedicated to watching Moana all the time. And while it's sitting in darkness in the store at night, it spontaneously combusts. Like it just erupts into flames. Now, despite the pinata sitting next to several cardboard boxes, stacks of paper, some open files, the fire didn't spread. It basically just burned the pinata to dust and then went out as quickly as it started. There's some sort of voice that can be picked up, but no one's been able to jigger with the audio to make it uh, legible. Legible is not the right word. Understandable. I, I, I need to point out here that this is the first time we see the Moana pinata in a seated position. You know, I'm not a pinata expert. I've maybe handled three or four in my entire life, but my experience is it's a fixed doll, right? It's fixed in one position like a gingerbread man, you know, head, arms sticking straight out to the side, legs going straight down. Apparently this one bent at the waist. I don't know why. Um, there's no reason for a pinata too, but that's what we have here, which makes it odd to me that He's able, Mario is able to sit the pinata in such a fashion and record it, and then it just suddenly erupts into flames. But whatever. Now, not too much longer after this event, two thieves break into Mario's store and do some stealing. And even though the monster is living inside Mario's store, apparently want to, you know, like eat a soul, they don't really take kindly to these trespassers. One of the thieves is basically like clotheslined by this unseen force. He's like running to the back to see what's back there when all of a sudden he just flies off his feet. Um, when his buddy comes to help him, the store lights start to flash and this long-haired woman appears to be floating behind them. Looks just like the girl from the ring. The buddy sees this apparition or what have you appear and he runs he's just leaving his buddy to whatever fate he's gonna suffer <laughs> well the buddy who got clotheslined is still laying on the ground and he starts going into seizures for lack of a better term and then eventually he kind of comes to after i don't know 30 seconds or so and slowly gets up and slowly stumbles out of the store apparently never seeing this ghost woman behind him now, Mario's fans during this time are like, okay, you got to get like a real paranormal investigating team in there. Like, this is ridiculous. You got to do something. So Mario acquiesces and invites a paranormal researcher to come basically spend the weekend at his store. And he's, this dude spends several days there alone. He records like a dozen hours of footage, but nothing paranormal was found. And after left, Mario notices the store feels different. Nothing's happening. So had he survived what was causing all these crazy incidents? And the words of Consuela from Family Guy, no, no. Then Mario's illnesses begin to uh, step it up a notch. Not only is he not sleeping and suffering from anxiety and the 
nosebleeds. Now he's having these really bad headaches. The nosebleeds are becoming much more frequent. And there's lots of other minor issues that crop up that he's never had before. And all of like the nosebleeds and the headaches and all that only seem to happen when he goes to bed. So he's suffering from like massive, massive um, sleep issues. So at this point, Mario apparently has developed this reputation for in the community, in the local community, not online, but like on his street. He's developed the reputation for having been able to survive all these ghost attacks, right? And so his neighboring tenants start coming by and they start sharing stories with him and the stories are always the same. They say that they are having their own strange occurrences. Lights flickering around, things falling off shelves. Basically, you know, what we've seen in Mario's videos. And they wanted Mario's advice on how to deal with it. And, you know, Mario said he offered up what he could, but I run a party supply shop. I'm not, you know, a ghostbuster. Apparently, those situations kind of come to a head, sadly, when one of his neighboring tenants' shops burst into flames during broad daylight. Uh, Mario recorded parts of the event. But the store, the inside of the store is reduced to ashes in a matter of minutes. And what makes it worse to me personally is it was a candy store. All that wonderful sugar just wasted. Um, it appears from what I could tell that none of the neighboring stores were affected by the fire, which is good, but also a little unusual because, you know, in Mexico, the shops are just, you share a wall. They're almost set up how Americans set up townhouses or what you would see in a strip mall. But this goes all the way down the street. So again, at the suggestion of his followers, after this happened, Mario decided that it wasn't safe to be in the store alone. So he adopted a cat. And it wasn't long before the cat would start kind of going crazy. It would start hissing at things that nobody could see. It would attack things. You know, it was just, I mean, cats are weird to begin with. I have three, so I can say that, right? But he he was able to catch the cat's activity on camera only once. And from what we can tell, it is, you know, tail puffed up, arch back, back arched and hissing in a very menacing way for a kitten. Well, working... One night, after getting the cat, Mario heard these strange banging noises coming from the back of his store, so he and his cat buddy go to investigate. They found nothing, but the cat was demanding to be released so it could go explore and fight off the monsters, or maybe try to extort money from them. You never know with cats. Mario holds the cat tight to his chest and decides to go back to his desk to continue working. Now, when he turns around, a Dora the Explorer pinata, which when he walks into the back room, all the pinatas are up against the wall in a corner. Dora has moved out from the corner and is now balanced on her head. Well, Mario nopes out of there while the cat just continues to scream curses in its native tongue. Um, oh, and guess what? we get to see more shadowy figures up in the rafters. Mario claims he never saw it, but is 
viewers pointed out not one, but two figures this time. Again, they're static. Again, they're not moving. Totally possible they could be props. And But, you know, on the other side, Mario doesn't focus on them in any way. His camera literally just passes over the rafters as he's turning around. And you have to freeze the footage and kind of enhance the brightness to be able to see them. So when that was revealed, Mario again accepted the help of another paranormal investigator who again comes and spends the weekend in the store. Now, this investigator got some interesting footage, but he's not the sort of investigator I think I'd pay to help. Um, first of all, the dude is napping one night when all of a sudden another TV, an older TV that's, you know, got the nice wooden frames and wooden legs like you see from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, that TV turns on and then kind of walks itself over to the couch. And it's pretty freaky looking. I mean, it moved probably a good eight feet before it stopped right at the arm of the couch. But again, it's one that it easily could have just been pulled by wire or something like that. There's nothing erratic about its movements. Um, eventually, the dude wakes up, sees the TV's there, pushes it back, realizes that's odd. And I guess to kind of calm his nerves or to chill or whatever, he had brought his PlayStation with him. And he had um, a VR set up for it. So he's playing this VR game at night. Which makes me really hope this dude was working pro bono. Um, anyway, but he's wrapped up in his virtual reality experience when his camera catches probably the strangest video of them all. It shows this ghost child sneak out of the back and watch the man play the game for a spell. The child looks to be five in my estimation and is basically totally transparent, but for his thick black hair. And when the kid moves, he moves at really incredible speeds, like think the flash. So the kid kind of, you see him kind of poke out from this back room and then he dashes over to the wall so he can watch what this guy's doing better. And then after several minutes of watching, the kid just dashes off camera. Then a few weeks later, Mario uploads this video of a worker who is digging through a box of tools looking for something when she is suddenly and somewhat violently dragged into a back room by her foot. Now, she never completely leaves the view of the camera before she's released. And of course, instantly dashes towards the front of the store, I assume, out the front door off camera. Um, and about the same time, Mario also posts a video of an older man who's just walking by the front of Mario's store when it looks like he's kind of stopped and pushed down by an unseen force. Now, that's all we've basically got. So far as we know, Mario is still alive and I guess relatively well. Um, I've put in my show notes links to two compilations of Mario Loria's videos. There was a video that I remember seeing before, but I couldn't find. So I don't know if it's been taken offline or what, but it shows Mario in his store during the day holding his cat. And to me, this was the most 
unexplainable video evolves. So I was disappointed I couldn't find it. But in this video, he's holding the cat right up against his chest. And so he's got one arm kind of under the cat's butt and the other one around the cat's chest. He's kind of petting it. When all of a sudden the hand that's on the chest of the cat, one of the fingers, I think it was the index finger, gets bent back just out of nowhere. And it's bent back to an extreme angle. And, you know, Mario kind of drops the cat and bends down on his knees. And then the video ends. So that's the story of Mario Alara and his haunted party store. Again, if you take these videos purely at face value, it is very frightening stuff. Because that's a lot of very, very evil activity going on there. If you are a skeptic, nothing in these videos is going to change your mind, though. And, you know, to me, it's like, while there's some weird stuff here, all of it could be staged if Mario was dedicated enough to keeping his internet fame. I'm really bothered by the fact that the first video of that that becomes viral is of, you know, this ghost woman popping out of pinatas in the middle of October, you know, right around Halloween. Maybe I'm just being unfair to the guy, but I'm I'm not I find the videos interesting, but they don't, I don't find them to be authentic. And I found a few channels on YouTube that seem to agree with me. And they are focused a lot on debunking Mario's tales. There's also a very small YouTube channel I found called Anything. And they have a lot of Mario's videos that other places don't have. Um, you know, I since I don't speak Spanish, it's not easy for me to find Mario's videos. So this is a, a Hispanic American chick who's uploaded them. And, you know, since she's just got a small operation, I wanted to give her a shout out because it is a good source for all of his videos. So, you know, if you want to check it out, go to anything on YouTube. I wonder how hard it is to actually search for that channel. I don't remember having any difficulties in finding it, but anyway. Okay, well, we're halfway through the episode. Maybe not time wise but content wise at least, at least and my youngest son joe insisted that we do one of his special palate cleansers so i thought it'd be a nice break after that little story and this is his palate cleanser for our halfway mark why do spiders love to use computers because spiders are addicted to viewing websites a wonderful palate cleanser for our halfway point. Good job, Joe. It works perfectly. Now let's move on to our next story. So how do we follow up that tale of terror? Why, we do so with a stupid criminal story, of course. And though one could argue that my client's tale at the beginning fits this category nicely, we're going to go to the Mecca of Stupid Criminals and bring you a Florida man story. That's a short one, but it's one that's definitely worth 
the Florida man name. So we've got a man by the name of Andre Abrams, who's 57 years old, and he was arrested in November last month on three counts of felony aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The incident arose from a dispute over a parking spot. Well, I guess it was more how Abrams was upset with how his neighbors would park. Now, I never totally grasped what the issue was. I don't know if they like parked on his grass, if they parked in a way that would block his driveway. But apparently this had been an ongoing feud and Abrams... He's a man with integrity, okay? And you can only push a man like that so far before he's going to respond. You know, if you saw Chuck Norris in a bar and you kept pestering him, eventually he's just going to roundhouse kick your head off. And that's kind of what we're dealing here with Abrams, okay? So his self-help was extreme enough that law enforcement had to get involved. He, um, you know, he was, he wasn't wild about being interviewed after the scuffle happened because he was concerned, not so much with the criminal charges, but he was concerned with how his homeowners association would look at the situation. And he didn't want to risk losing his house, which is a legit concern, I admit, because, you know, homeowners associations, if you've ever had to deal with them, they're always run by these old white women who have nothing better to do in their lives but find ways to bring misery and grief to other people. So I get it. And I totally understand why Abrams would be concerned in particular because he chose to flex his manhood via a flamethrower. Yeah, a flamethrower. This dude brought a flamethrower to a parking dispute. The people who were the victims of Abrams' outrage were teenagers. So a little part of me thinks it was justified because teenagers are awful. Uh, but apparently this is how Abrams solves a lot of the conflicts he has with his neighbors. There were folks saying that they had seen him pull it out before, and boy, when he fired it off, it lit up the night sky. He, uh, fortunately, he tended to stay on his property and really wasn't all that menacing with it. But the dude had a flamethrower. And that's just, like, you know, some people, you know, I'm going to go get my gun. Okay, that's a very American response. I'm going to go get a baseball bat. Okay, that's a little bit more reserved response whenever you're expecting trouble. This dude just gets a freaking flamethrower. How does he get a flamethrower? Well, I looked into that. So we're going to drop some knowledge on you. Flamethrowers do not meet the legal definition of a firearm. So they are essentially unregulated by both federal law and most state laws in the United States. I think from what I could find, only California and Maryland have banned private ownership of a flamethrower. So Abrams had gotten his from this website. I'm not going to give him a shout out uh, where he spent $900 and got his very own flamethrower. And as a bonus, it came with a T-shirt that says little terrorist on it. What 
fun. What a fun store, isn't it? Oh, I really wish Abrams had been wearing that T-shirt in his mugshot. Now, while Abrams was hesitant to talk to reporters about his choice of weapons or his criminal charges, he was totally fine with trash-talking his neighbors. He said everybody didn't like these people. They caused problems with all of the neighbors. And he was really just trying to bring the issue to light. I swear to God, he used the words he was trying to bring the issue to light. It's not some clever pun by me. That's a quote from Abrams. I kind of get the feeling, though, that his concern about the Homeowners Association isn't really justified because they don't really seem to be very hands-on. Uh, if he's been allowed to kind of walk the streets at night shooting flames up into the air, and there's been parking disputes allegedly with how this neighbor and their family parks everywhere, I don't think he'll lose his house. I, I think the criminal charges are probably his biggest concern, or maybe the fact that I'm, I, I'd be willing to bet that the police do not return the flamethrower to him, which is sad. Um, now, I say this with the disclaimer that I am not a licensed attorney for the state of Florida, but to me, I really think the court should just step out of the way, give Abrams his flamethrower back, but force him to buy a flamethrower for his neighbors so when they feel the need to come to blows, they're on equal footing. And they can let the power of the cleansing fire solve the dispute. I don't know if Florida law would allow for this, but I say you build a little battle arena next to every courthouse in that state and settle all these petty little disputes like this. You know, we're going to have the fire dome for justice. I'd be willing to bet you could get Netflix involved in this and they would probably foot the bill for most of the construction costs and you could turn this into a source of revenue for the state. And I guarantee you that most people in the world would tune in to watch this. So Netflix, if you're listening, and I know you are, Florida government officials, if you're listening, I don't know if y'all are, let's get on this because... I've had lots of good ideas for TV shows, but this is the one that needs to go first. This is going to give the Killing Missing Hidden production company some real momentum. Um, just so you know, as of this moment, Abrams is waiting on his next court date. So it's a developing story. Maybe we can continue covering it. Well, what would a celebration of our podcast be? What good would it be to sing the praises of a hundred episodes if we didn't at least dip our toes back into the missing 411 waters, right? So I'm going to share two stories with you from the work of Mr. David Politis himself, the king of 411s, missing 411s. Specifically, these are coming from his book, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details. We're going to hit up some stories that are on the older side, since those are harder for me to research, and Mr. Politis has done all the work for us. At, you know, As a reminder, if you ever want to buy a Missing 411 book, you know, if, if you buy into the stuff and you find it interesting, don't look on Amazon or eBay, okay? Go straight to the source. It's canammissing.com 
That's Mr. Politis's website. You can buy the books there. And the reason I advocate for that is on Amazon, they're like 70, 80, 90 bucks. They're 25, 35 bucks on Politis's website. You dodge a huge markup if you go straight to canammissing.com. Okay. All right, but let's get to the stories. We're going to start off with the odd disappearance of Anna Christian Waters, a young girl of only five who went missing from Half Moon Bay in California. Now, Half Moon Bay is about 40 miles south of San Francisco. And this location used to be some truly rugged, you know, backcountry type living when Anna went missing. Today, if you look it up on Google Maps, it's covered by multi-million dollar homes, you know, owned by those Silicon Valley types, as well as entertainers. It's an area where there's the climate allows for sudden changes in weather. You know, in the morning it can be cold and foggy, and in the afternoon it's warm and sunny. The area where the where Anna's family lived was also close to the Crystal Springs Reservoir which is actually pretty heavily guarded and protected from trespassers. And as we'll get into really where Anna was living, it's kind of a boxed in area. There's not a lot of places you can go, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So our story takes place on January 16th of 1973, but we have to back up two days. Um, Mr. Politis notes in his report and this was also included in the sheriff's office report that on january 14th anna woke up with a nightmare she claimed she was being chased by a giant spider through the woods that surrounded their house and she just couldn't find a way back home and this was considered unusual anna didn't have nightmares and she could not calm down like no matter what her mother did Anna could not calm down. And eventually she just kind of had to hold Anna and they fell asleep in the parents' bed. But back to the 16th, okay? Anna gets home from school around 12.30 that day. All right, all right, we got to take another step back. A few hours before on that same day, the local community had a situation developed that's really bizarre, but it like truly was a situation. There was a rooster that went crazy. He just turned bad and attacked one of Anna's neighbors. And not in like what you think of as a crazy rooster, why did it attack me sort of way, but like this rooster declared a blood feud and it aggressively chased down the neighbor and attacked her for way longer than was normal and with such ferocity that the woman had to go like hide in her house. And even that didn't stop the rooster. Like the rooster followed her to the door and when it was closed and locked, it just started pecking on the door. Like it was going to break in and the daggum thing was making progress. It was making a hole in her door. She finally had to call a neighbor and say, I need help. This rooster is going to kill me. (laughs) And the neighbor she called was a blacksmith. So, and he was, a you know, what you think of from like fantasy novels or whatever as a blacksmith, a big burly guy. So he came over and tried to just, you know, get rid of the rooster to defuse the situation. But the damn thing attacked him. And then when he let go of the rooster, it ran back to the woman's house and kept pecking on the door. 
It was crazy. So the blacksmith didn't have a choice. He had to kill it to make it stop. So we've got these two weird events that kind of form the shadow under which our story is really going to take place. All right, so again, Anna gets home around 1230 on January 16th. Like any child, she runs inside, she drops off all her crap, and she changes into her play clothes, grabs some toys, and she runs into the backyard so she can play with her toys, she can play with her dog, and she can play with the neighborhood kids. Anna's mom, who adults would call Michelle, I guess, you know, she was at home, of course, and she supervised as the parents does when a child is playing in the backyard, right? You check on her from time to time, but you go about your day doing laundry, you know, do, you know, cleaning the house, whatever needed to be done. And this was not a very densely populated area, but everybody who lived there had kids. And so, you know, Michelle just heard little voices bouncing around outside during this entire time. Now, sometime between 1.30 and 2 p.m., Anna came inside to grab some fresh toys, and she dumped her raincoat because it had stopped raining. Or it had stopped raining, at least to the five-year-old's satisfaction. Mom probably preferred that she wear the coat, but whatever. You pick your battles as a parent. Of course, Michelle thought nothing of it. Anna's just having a good old time. However... Around 2.15, Michelle noticed that things had gotten oddly quiet, like weirdly quiet, eerily quiet, you could say. No children were running around. No dogs were barking. Everybody had dogs. No, none of them were barking. And even just this general sounds of nature. There's no birds chirping. The leaves aren't rustling. And her mom alarm went off. And she ran out back to check on Anna, and Anna was gone. Now, you know, of course, as any parent would, Michelle begins kind of jogging around the property, yelling for Anna. She kind of explores her favorite haunts in the woods that were close by. But nothing. Now, I'm going to say fortunately here, it may not be the best choice of words, but the back of their property and part of the side their property line followed this creek. And for whatever reason, that day the creek was much higher than normal and full of just rushing water. And the reason I say fortunately is because that helped box Anna in. There was no way she could cross the creek under those conditions. Under normal conditions, she would have been able to. And behind the creek was undeveloped land. So real woods, you know, real forest land back there. Across the street from where they lived was more woodland. But these trees and this forest was part of a very, very steep hill. Uh, I don't think it was tall enough to qualify as a mountain, but basically you ain't going to climb up it without a lot of effort. And... You know, Anna's dressed in her play clothes and she's wearing galoshes, so she's not in a position to make a steep climb. So she's boxed in from that angle. If you left the house, and I think it's if you turned left, there's a dirt road that ran in front of the house. If you turn left, that road would go towards the creek. Well, the creek's flooding was so bad, it had flooded out that road. So if Anna had followed the road, 
she couldn't go that direction. It would be blocked off. She couldn't cross it. So again, really the only places Anna could go were either down the road to the right, which would take her past virtually every neighbor they had, or through her backyard, which connected up with everybody else's backyard. Michelle, you know, ran to all the neighbors' house to see if Anna was, you know, inside playing with her kids or if they'd seen Anna and all that. After about 30 minutes, it was obvious her search was fruitless. Michelle said, I got to call the sheriff. Uh, a deputy arrived around 3.15, and he poked around a little bit and then tried sounding his siren just to see if that noise would pique the curiosity of Anna and she would come out of hiding, you know? And actually, it kind of worked in that several kids came out of neighbors' houses to see what was going on, but Anna didn't show up. Now, the neighbor who lived kind of most upstream from Michelle, and I think, if I understand the layout correctly, I think right at the washout of the dirt road, heard an odd noise right after that siren sounded. The neighbor said that when the siren went off, she heard this noise, and she couldn't describe it very well. The best she could come up with was it was almost as if multiple trees were being pushed over and cracking at their trunks at once, or maybe if like a boulder had been cracked, but it, she kept, you know, cracking was the word she used. Police also noted that the family dog hadn't disappeared with Anna. It was still there. And the dog kept running from the back door of the house to the Creek, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, so law enforcement officers said, let's start with the creek, which makes total sense. They brought when, you know, kind of the force of searchers arrived, they brought a couple of helicopters with them and the helicopters went up and down the creek looking for anything, saw nothing. Searchers on the ground kind of walked both sides of the creek as best they could and nothing. And they found this unusual because those galoshes Anna was wearing were, of course, too big for her. So they would have fallen off pretty easily. And I think I think they were described as a bright red. So they should have stood out to some degree. Uh, but no, they weren't ever found. Some other groups, um, you know, instead of searching the creek, uh, they went into the woods and kind of poked around a little bit. But by the time the sun was setting, it was getting hard to navigate, and the sheriff called off the search and said, we'll be back in the morning. Now, obviously, this wouldn't happen in today's world. The search would continue overnight. But apparently, this wasn't uncommon 50 years ago. So the next morning, around 8 o'clock, the sheriff shows back up, and he's brought with him officers from all sorts of other departments and lots of specialized officers. He's got canine units with bloodhounds. He's got divers who are trained to, you know, look for bodies in difficult waters. And he's got folks that are just experienced in doing mountain climbing and, you know, tougher hikes and things like that. So they look and they notice, like, they find Anna's footprints scattered all throughout her backyard 
as you would expect. But none of them let off the property. Like if you followed them, they just, I guess it's like those old family circus comic strips where, you know, if you follow the dotted line, it just kind of goes in a circle. But it's all in the backyard. Uh, the bloodhounds, only one bloodhound was able to pick up Anna's scent. And it led its handler upstream for a little ways before losing Anna's scent. The divers went into the water and found absolutely nothing. And the way that creek flew, uh, flowed, it went through several dams and several fences and lots of obstructions that would prevent a body from going very far if it was caught in the rapids. And so the divers were frustrated because they felt like the most logical spot to find Anna would have been in the creek and there's nothing coming up. The canine units are frustrated because their dogs just can't get any sort of scent, which doesn't make any sense to them. And then those on foot, you know, they went up kind of the steep side of the mountain hill thing. They went um, down the road and all that. Nothing. Despite all of these efforts, not a single bit of evidence was ever found on Anna. To this day, nothing regarding Anna has ever been found. No clothing of hers, none of her boots, no bones, nada. Now, abduction was considered, and some of the officers believe that to be the most likely explanation, but I think there were 16 houses kind of on this road. Not a single one of them ever saw a vehicle come down that road that they had never seen before during this time frame. And so... They couldn't, it was hard for the sheriff to reach that conclusion based off of that evidence. Now, when they did the report, like I said, you know, the nightmare was included in there. Um, the rooster incident was included in there. And the report noted that there were other unusual phenomenon at the time, but didn't otherwise clarify so there's this veil of spookiness surrounding Anna's case. You know, of course, that law enforcement's focus on the stream seems totally appropriate. It's wild that neither of Anna's boots were ever found considering how big they were. They just slipped on. Whether she fell in the creek, whether she tried to climb that mountain, or whether she just got lost in the more settled woodlands that she had access to, you would think she would eventually ditch the boots in some form. Um, you know, and there's also, like you have with all these missing 411 cases, you know, yes, logic dictates that the body's going to be found downstream, but we have two pieces of evidence that suggest something was going on upstream in a location that a child couldn't reach. You've got the weird cracking noise and you've got the bloodhound wanting to go upstream but losing scent in doing so. And, you know, if you've listened to some of our previous Missing 411 episodes or studied the phenomenon on your own, you know that 
in this world, it's not uncommon to find missing people in totally illogical or arguably even impossible locations. But we don't know what happened to Anna. 50 years has passed, and we don't know whatever happened to this little girl. She just vanished. All right, so we're going to jump into our second tale. This is Christopher Virgil. He disappeared at the age of nine on April 30th, 1978. He was with his mother and younger brother as they decided to spend the afternoon of April 30th, hiking up Gray Rock Mountain in Colorado. Apparently, this is a very popular hiking location. And if you can make it to the top, it offers this just amazing view of the mountain and the mountains surrounding it. But the hike is considered fairly difficult, largely due to the height that uh, that you're operating at above sea level. Um, the top of the trail ends at over 7,000 feet above sea level or roughly 2,100 meters above sea level. Now, Christopher was in really good shape. He was on a school's track team. He ran every day. And so, and he, you know, he living in Colorado, he lived very close to this trail. I don't know what the base of the trail was at this time, but it's at least going to be elevated to some degree. So his body would be acclimated to thinner air than the average person in America. Now, fortunately, the trail itself is very well marked, and it's nothing more really than just a series of switchbacks until you get to the top. And so when they started up the trail, Christopher was like, Mom, can I just run on ahead and meet y'all at the top? And Mom was like, yeah, that's fine, because you're not going to get lost. You know, if you get abducted, there's only one way down, and it's going to be past Mama. It's very safe. It's fine. So Christopher, you know, bounces up the trail like a little deer. And working his way up, he runs into a man by the name of Alan Shupan. Christopher apparently was a pretty outgoing young man. And he struck up a conversation with Alan as they walked the trail. Just talking about things. And, you know, but soon Alan was in his 50s. So he wasn't. He didn't have all the nonstop energy that children have that we so love and that so drives us crazy. And eventually Christopher kind of started outpacing Alan and left him behind. There were two women who also saw Christopher that day. They were having lunch on the trail and actually Alan came across them as well. And Alan said, did y'all see a boy pass through here? And the girls, um, you know, said, yeah, we saw him just kind of running along the trail not long ago. Now, meanwhile, Christopher's mom and his younger brother had started up the trail, but had decided to stop because his brother, who was four, was really having a problem with it. It was too challenging for him. So mama decides, you know, we'll just go back to the bottom of the trail where we parked and wait for Christopher to come back down. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Well, Alan comes down the trail, and he sees, you know, this woman and her son just kind of sitting on the hood messing around, and something compels him to go talk to her. And he says, you know, is that your son 
Christopher that I passed in the trail. And she said, yeah, uh, it is. You, you talked to him. Is he okay? And he said, yeah, but, you know, I went up the trail. I finished it. We, I ran into Christopher, ran into me. We talked for a little while. He went on ahead. But when I got to the top of the trail, he wasn't there. And I never saw him come back down. And on my way back down, I didn't see him. So I'm a little worried about him. And mom agreed. And she instantly went to a little store that was there and called the police. Now, the police arrived on the scene quickly and they brought a helicopter with them. They were jumping on it immediately. But according to the report, literally as soon as the helicopter was overhead, the weather went from being kind of dreary to just an absolute monsoon, like sheets of rain were just being dumped on the area. And these gusts of wind were just furious. And like instantly the helicopter is in danger <laughs> and it has to leave the area to find a safe spot to land. Uh, police tried to climb up the trail to look for Christopher, but it was impossible. It was just, they were basically walking up a waterfall, just sheets with all this rain. It was just tumbling down the trails. And so they said, okay, um, you know, we'll leave an officer out here in case Christopher comes down, but we can't go up. Um, there was also, when all this happened, dense fog rolled in. So even those that were strong enough and were determined enough to fight the waters up the trail, they couldn't see where they were going and they were getting lost. Even with this well-defined switchback trail, they were finding themselves constantly kind of stepping off the trail into rugged woodland. And so it, the decision was made. It was like, look, we can't do this. This is too dangerous for us right now. We'll try in the morning after this weather passes. Arguably, things were worse the next day because overnight the rain had turned into snow. And by the end of that second day, over 12 inches of snow had dropped. That's about 30 centimeters. But still, 170 police and search and rescue personnel made the effort to climb the mountain. And they were successful. They got to the top. And they thoroughly searched every nook and cranny that Christopher could be hiding in. And nothing was found. Next day, same story. They repeat the process again. Snow continues to fall. The wind finally subsided enough that two helicopters were able to come in. They flew overhead. They saw nothing. The searchers on the ground found nothing. By the end of the week, this started on a Monday. By the end of the week, um, by that Saturday, over 45 inches of snow had fallen, or 114 centimeters. And this is at the end of April, beginning of May. I mean, not true summer, but, and I've never lived in Colorado, but 45 inches of snow. Holy, I mean, that is a massive amount. And to have that following during a warmer time of year, it's surprising. Things were so bad that the leaders of the search decided Thursday afternoon they could not continue searching under these conditions. They would have to wait till the weather improved because they lost so many 
personnel due to injuries in the search. People were falling and breaking ankles, breaking legs, getting concussions. It was nasty. Local law enforcement, I think the sheriff specifically called the governor and asked for help from the National Guard, but the Colorado governor denied this request because of the costs involved, which is just disgusting. He would rather, I think they estimated it would cost $50,000, and he didn't think that was something the taxpayers should bear the burden of. Um, of course, meanwhile, while all the searchers and all the police are up around the mountain, there's other officers who are working this case as if it was an abduction or a homicide or a runaway. And so they're interviewing people naturally. They interview Alan and talk to him. And, you know, he was very cooperative. And in fact, he went to the scene and hooked up with one of the police groups and he was showing them, you know, here's where I saw Christopher. We talked, you know, all the way to here. And then he ran off. He pointed out where he saw the two girls having their little picnic. The police were able to find the two women. And the women had an interesting short story to tell that they were there to have this little, you know, afternoon picnic. They were, they were friends and, um, wanted to spend some time together. But when they kind of got settled down and started eating, Christopher had already come by. Alan had already come by. And as they were, you know, getting into their sandwiches, they heard this scream and they said it was a scream. It didn't sound human, but it sounded close to human. And as soon as we heard that scream, which was coming from the top of the mountain, we just had this instinctive feel that we had to get off that mountain immediately. And that's what we did. So some, you know, aura of fear just descended upon the trail and hit these two women. And they said, we got to get out of here. Again, decades have passed. And at no point was any trace of Christopher ever found. Again. No clothing, no bones, nothing. Experts claim that in these conditions, Christopher would have only had about 90 minutes to find dry shelter and start working to preserve his body heat before the effects of hypothermia would begin to take its toll. And again, like I said, every possible hiding place on that mountain was searched multiple times by multiple different teams. Nothing was ever found. Over 10,000 man hours were spent on this search. And again, it's a search in a very, very defined area, kind of like Anna's, where you're not having to cover, you know, all of Yellowstone Park. You are covering one trail going up one mountain and nothing was found. Christopher, much like Anna, just disappeared, just vanished. Well, I think that's enough to put a wrap on this episode. I hope you enjoyed this little fun kind of celebration in podcast form. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever have thought that we'd reach 100 episodes. I, uh, 
I just assumed I'm too lazy and that nobody would really find what I had to say interesting. But this stupid little podcast keeps going. And dadgummit, there's so many of y'all that listen. I can't believe it. And I, I just have to say, in all sincerity, thank you. It's it's shocking to me. And, you know, I don't, I mean, I like to be, I like to play the character of an arrogant little prick, but um, I, I really don't try to brag much. But, you know, this podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts in the world based on the number of downloads. The top 1% in the world? Why? <laughs> I don't get it. It's insane to me, but I am so appreciative for it. I mean, y'all make me feel so blessed. And this isn't like being dominated by one area. We aren't like a local phenomenon. We've got listeners in over 100 countries, guys. I mean, there's folks that are listening to me talk. Thousands of people in Australia and Sweden, Germany, South Africa. It's wild. It's so wild. And I mean, this is all 100% thanks to you guys. You guys keep listening every week, no matter how dumb our episode topics are, no matter how stupid I sound. Y'all are there. You guys just rock. There's no other way to put it. You guys kick butt. Um, as always, you know, if y'all ever want to see a particular topic covered or have suggestions on how we can prove, I'm always listening. Those of you all who have sent in suggested topics, I've got them. I know there's some that I've had for a while that we haven't gotten to, but we will one day. I will tell you that my greatest weakness probably as a podcaster is... I can't just pick up a case and run with it. Something kind of has to grab me in it. Um, and what that is can change, you know, every week. So just be patient and eventually we'll get to what you've suggested. You know, just so no one's shocked, I think this will probably be our last episode for the year. I may take the first week off of January as well. I guess it it's... I'll be honest, if work is boring and I ain't got nothing to do, then yeah, I'll start working on a new episode. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I'm going to go out of my way. We've got some traveling to do and things like that. Plus, since we've hit 100 episodes, I feel like I've earned the right to call for a break when I need it. Um, you know, before we close this out, I got to do our second palate cleanser from Mr. Eli himself. Here's what he I, I told him weeks ago, we're coming up on episode 100. So I need you to break out the big guns because we need a special one. And this is what he submitted. Did you hear that new joke about corn? No? Ah, never mind. It's, it's just too corny to tell. Yep, that's how Mr. Eli wants to end 2021, how he wants to hit episode number 100 with that joke. God bless him. All right, I'm going to ramble a little bit here. Um, I hope you'll listen. <laughs> but um, it's just more thank yous. Uh, so many of y'all as listeners have been so supportive on an individual level. I really wanted to go through and name y'all by name, but I knew I would miss one or two, and I don't want to risk hurting your feelings. So everybody that's emailed me or messaged me and we've talked and you've helped out in any way, you know who you are. I know who you are and 
really and truly know that we love you and we appreciate you more than is probably normal. You'll forever be part of this podcasting family. I wish we were the sort of podcast that could kind of, you know, pick up and travel around the country so I can meet some of y'all, maybe someday soon. Um, But right now, you know, we'll just have to do a podcast high five. I do want to name some podcasts that I kind of feel indebted to for one reason or another. They really deserve special shout outs for what they've done to help me. First on that list, without a doubt, is the Strange Sessions. Without them, there would be no Killing Missing Hidden. So I just cannot possibly thank them enough. I really, you know, I I like their podcast a lot. I can see where it's not for everybody, but I do hope if you haven't given them a chance, you will. If I could make this a traveling podcast, the first place we would go would be to Wisconsin, just so I could see Kurt and Kristen give them a hug. Next, I want to thank a teacher in a crime scene walking to a bar. They've just been wonderful friends of the show. They've been very supportive. Um, you know, we've they've appeared on here before. I've appeared on their show. And I just love them to death. Um, it's always a husband podcast has always been so supportive of us and so sweet. I can't, I mean, I love those women. They are so freaking funny. I wish I had their sense of humor. It's a little middle schoolish, but I work at that level. Uh, (laughs) So thank you so much. It's always the husband. The girls at Quite Unusual, I think of them as two little sisters I've never gotten to meet in real life. They do an awesome job with their show. Their research skills are so amazing. And they're the sort that will just send me a random pick-me-up message. And it just means a lot to know that these people I've never met are rooting for us, you know? True Crime Cat Lawyer. It's so cool to see another solo attorney hosting a true crime podcast. Um, Even though it's on hiatus until January, Noteville has been a constant source of inspiration for me. I love how they format their show, the topics they get into, and they too have been very, very supportive of everything we've done. Um, Dead Curious, they've closed up shop, but I adored working with them on a variety of of podcast projects they were great and it saddens me that that their show isn't on anymore but i know they've moved on to bigger and better things reverie true crime my goodness they have done so much to support us on social media i i just can't even start um i mean many of you probably found us because of them i just have to say that Paige, who runs that is such an angel Finally, Wait What, a British podcast that I loved. We kind of hooked up in my early days, and those two guys are really, really funny, and I really enjoyed their podcast. They're switching formats, so I think Wait What in name is dying, but they're coming back with a new formula, and I'm really excited to see what that's going to be. I've probably forgotten some shows 
if I did, I apologize, but there's so many out there that do so much for me and for our show. And I hope we've returned the favor to some degree, but I'm listing them all here because I would love for y'all to at least check them out and see if they're your flavor. And if they are, please subscribe to them. Please give them a good rating. Please support them. I think almost all of them that I mentioned are indie podcasts. And y'all know how I feel about indie podcasts. I would so much rather listen to somebody that's doing this on their own than somebody that's being funded by some corporation, you know? You get so much more truth and it's so much more real. Those guys, So please go check out all those podcasts. Of course, I got to thank my wife. Without her, I would never, ever, ever find the time to record. She corrals the kids. She makes sure I have time to do this. She has been amazingly supportive, and I am so blessed to have a woman like that in my life. I don't know what I did to trick her into marrying me, but I'm very thankful that my my little scheme worked. My boys, of course, they'll always be my boys. Uh, my oldest, Jacob, you know, some would argue has the least to do with this show, but he's also the one that loves wearing our merch. He loves pimping the show to his friends. God knows how many listeners he's pulled in. Uh, of course, there's Mr. Eli with his encyclopedic knowledge of jokes, who's here every week to help entertain y'all. And then there's little Joe, who just likes to pop in from time to time to share a joke or find some other way to entertain me that I can pass on to y'all. With that, I'm pretty much done yapping. I hope everyone has an awesome end of the year. I hope that 2022 starts us returning to normal. Probably not likely, but we still have hope. But of course, in the words of George Costanza, hope is killing me. (laughs) Um, I will be here to hold your ears in my tender arms once again in a few weeks. Until then, thank you very much. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing hidden make sure to rate subscribe and share questions email us at info at kmhpodcast.com